Good morning. I'm Paul, host of the new PL podcast and founder of the new PL Brand Purpose Institute, where we work with business leaders, employees, and entrepreneurs just like you and empower them to build brands with purpose on purpose. And this week, our shout out goes out to Ireland, another one of the nearly 90 countries the new PL is now listened to in. A massive thank you to all of our Irish listeners for your ongoing support and belief in our global movement for more principled leadership and more purpose led business. You are an important part of this movement. This week's guest is someone I met earlier this year when I facilitated the World AI Can Festival in France in April. His name is Dominic Romano. Dominic gave an absolutely fascinating presentation at the festival, much of which I wanted to explore in more detail with him, so I invited him onto the new PL. Dominic is founder and CEO of Drainpipe.io, a neural processing startup which was founded in 2020 to address the need to represent any form of multimedia and relationship in an infinite continuous space for long-term data storage and effective compression into weighted symbolic parameters. Drainpipe is essentially an operating system which acts as a QuickBooks for your digital footprint in business. And Drainpipe is Dominic's latest entrepreneurial venture because he's a serial tech entrepreneur. He launched his first digital advertising agency while he was in middle school before becoming a video game developer, a software engineer, and then launching Premium CPM, another digital advertising agency that he actually scaled into one of the world's top 100 programmatic advertising agencies. So Dominic, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Perhaps we could start the conversation with you giving listeners a, a quick introduction to you, what you do and who you do it for. Sure. So I'm the founder of Drainpipe.io. Drainpipe.io was founded in January 2020 as a distributed database to be able to uh, ingest and observe any form of multimedia and train them into large scale and scalable models to detect anomalies and um, various trends in data. Okay. When you, when you say detect anomalies on the basis of what who who's how has it been detected who is detecting it and what potential bias does the does it bring into the system if you like sure so when we're when we're looking at anomalies um we're we're really looking at that from the viewpoint of the user who has an account and who has a repository um with us right so we really look at accounts similar to a bank account in a sense where you're storing your knowledge in a secure repository um, so that what you specify as a tag or a label on a piece of information um, might be different or might be uh, weighted differently than the next user. Um, so all of the labelings are going to be very um, unique and very specific to each individual user for their specific use cases, right? So, um, you know, where this really gets into the exciting potential is um, its capability to potentially transform manufacturing and, and our ability to detect um, defects in bottling, um, you know, from aluminum cans to mm -hmm. uh, plastic. Um, and then you have... Um, a lot of growth potential for uh, usage in imagery um, because of how we handle 
uh, the distributed nature of, of our computing, um, we're able to work with imaging in a very, very fast um, way that, again, is, is just really unheard of. And that's kind of what a lot of our success was in Khan when we went to the uh, World AI Con Festival um, was really our, our ability to scale to meet the needs of some of the largest clients in the world. And then also our ability to um, provide uh, really low latency predictions um, mm -hmm. at scale as, as user goes. So you're, you're developing the next generation of operating systems for AI, as I understand it, and you refer to it and others have as the QuickBooks of the digital footprint. I wanted to understand sort of beneath the, the slogan, if you like, tell me a little bit more about what that means, what defines it, what you're trying to achieve with that. What are the principles that define it? Sure. So what we're really looking to do is we're looking to encapsulate the machine learning operations experience right mm -hmm. into a uh, visual experience where using visual tooling a given user can manipulate view observe and train data without having to be a um, nuts and bolts data scientist kind of individual um, mm -hmm. So without having to have the full training of knowing how to balance a data set, you can get knowledge into production rapidly um, to empower your business or, or empower your life. And part of your stated purpose is to build a system that allows users to take control of their data in a world of AI. Talk me through this in more detail because it's one of the, the key concerns. I think many users have around AI and the, the inputting of data and where that data goes and how it's analyzed. How is control taken back through drain pipe and, and why did you put it at the center of your purpose? Sure. So what's really interesting to think about is control it control for a for a user, especially a consumer of um, a uh, software as a service technology, right? So um, many business owners and many everyday users have services that they rely on, right? So if you if you run an engineering company, you might rely on HackerRank. Uh, if you run any kind of small business, you might rely on QuickBooks. Um, you know, people rely on Zoom, right? So all of these different services generate new data that mm -hmm. a given user is really paying for, um, augmenting throughout their usage of this. Uh, technology, right? But in order to actually leverage the data that you generate on these technologies, you have to get past their walled garden, which is mainly their APIs. And uh, in, in many cases, a company would go ahead and develop a specific integration for a given technology to then yeah. empower their business. What we're doing is, is we're providing a uh, open marketplace where any new integration can be added and um, we're allowing the users to actually utilize these same APIs that kind of block off their data in a sense. We're allowing users to be able to pull their data into their own control so that they can download it and they have really constant backups of it so that in the event that they lose an account or you know, their Facebook is suspended or their Twitter is suspended, um, they still have access to all the data that they originated 
Mm -hmm. um, and they, they created, right? Yeah. And what people don't really consider too frequently is that when we put an, even a new thought into a tweet, right? Um, those are digital artifacts, which in 20, 50, 60 years from now could hold considerable value. What else would they hold other than considerable value? Because as we often see, they're turned back on the author as well. Um, so how do you, is there any way to mitigate that? They don't just carry value, they also carry risk, don't they? Unforeseen risk, right? Yes. Because as yeah. time changes, the perception of the perception that's held by society skews the perception of the data that's kind of been entrenched in the web, right? Yeah. So uh, commentary that might have been acceptable. Um, actually, just look at um, look at the. Look at the progression of comedy in America, right? So comedy that was acceptable, like all in the family back in the 70s, in today's day and age is, is a lot more harsh and crude, mm -hmm. um, but it was acceptable back then where it's a little bit more frowned upon today, right? Yeah. I'd like to expand on that a little bit more because when we met at the AI Festival in Cannes a couple of months back, I was moderating the AI strategy and technology streams and you were one of the the keynote speakers there and you made a we well, made many brilliant points in your presentation but one which really fascinated me and sort of led to the invitation to come on the podcast was that you said today and in the future we need to measure data and information in terms of time and space and I really wanted to understand both for my own knowledge but also for the audience what what do you mean by that how do we measure data in time and space it's a very good question, right? So you might have seen in the news recently that CERN has recently kicked up the Large Hadron Collider again, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I use the Large Hadron Collider as a good example because what the Large Hadron Collider is doing in creating these collisions of particles is they're simulating the creation of time, right? Um, so what's really important is going to be humanity's ability to leverage and harness and unharness technology to intervene in time to help, human, to help humans become more productive in their day-to-day -to, -day to drive a more favorable outcome in our lives. Right. So can you give me a practical example of that for the listeners? What, what does that look like in action? Sure. So um, it takes time to process very large amounts of information, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if we start looking at representing data in a way that takes less time to do so in a distributed fashion, so things can happen all at the same time, and um, can happen in a smaller space, then representing that data over time becomes easier because as you're adding more, it's just in a tight space and you're able to transfer this information faster because you have less of it really in bulk that's sitting stationary, right? And as we continue to consume more and more multimedia as a civilization, 
overall as, as the larger humanity, our ability to efficiently store this large information that we produce is going to become more and more important as time goes on because you know we're on this huge uh, scale of where we're every single year exponentially growing the amount of storage that we consume um, with technology for multimedia. So, so when I came away from CAN, that was the one point, as I say, that, that stuck with me more than ever. And I was trying to find in my own head a way to relate this to, to my understanding as a non-technologist, if you like. If I can run that by you to see whether I'm understanding it right. So if someone had a heart attack 30 years ago, there is a process. Someone has a heart attack, someone close to them makes a call to the ambulance, the ambulance comes over a period of time, takes that person to the hospital, and there's an extended period of time. It's all information, and it's all been methodically or chronologically issued, heart attack, phone call, ambulance, hospital. But there's a time frame with that, and that individual may live or die as a result of the, the speed of which that ambulance responds and gets them to the hospital. From what I'm understanding, technology is enabling us, let's say, through through watches that are uh, measuring heartbeat, that are anticipating sometimes heart attacks, that are able to alert uh, the emergency services when a heart attack occurs. It is consider all of that data, which is a huge amount of data, is considerably narrowing the time from the heart attack to the response and the rescue. And that materially could change the outcome of that individual situation from potential death 30 years ago to, to life 30 years later because of the shortening, despite more information, all of that information coming from the watch on their hand and the software systems that are responding, all of that information in a shorter space of time is materially changing the outcome and the life expectancy of that individual. Is that, does that a fair assessment of what you're saying to me? Am I understanding it right? To some extent, absolutely. And then there's the other portion that really it's the intervention in the progression of time yeah. for things to happen faster yes. um, that allows the, the overall message of what you're saying to really take hold, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, and that was the basis of my speech in time, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think we are reaching a point, we're certainly not for you and, and your peers, but for the majority of us, you talked about our ability to advance and to deliver on the future, and you gave the example of the Hadron Collider, is to harness technology. But do you think as a society we are reaching a point where many of us fail to understand what technology can deliver us because it's exceeding our ability to understand it, if you like, to, to, to comprehend it? Yeah, I think, I think the space of research has been somewhat impacted by a narrowing and narrowing scope on certain topics mm -hmm. that have impeded on our ability to, to, to think beyond and step beyond certain um, technological barriers that we've been facing for the last 
40 to 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And what's happening is, is we're coming to the end, truthfully. And a lot of people have been saying this over the last couple of years, but it's a truthful statement that we're really coming to the end of uh, Moore's law for yeah. our ability to get um, you know, more and more space into tighter physical um, you know, circuitry. So as that continues to be a more and more severe issue, because we just can't go any smaller and just can't go any tighter, we're gonna have to rethink the algorithms that we use to be able to support the next generation of chip manufacturing, right? Because like, we're really not in a space right now where 3D manufacturing of chips is really mainstream. But what's gonna happen one day is we're gonna develop algorithms that correlate with 3D printed designs of chips. And those correlations are gonna allow computation to take place hundreds of thousands of times faster than what we're capable of today. Yeah. So slightly circular question then, are we in danger? Are the very algorithms that we seek to change limiting our ability to change them because algorithms also funnel our thinking and don't allow us to expand in some regards our curiosity? You know, I mean, we're awash with information, but perhaps devoid in wisdom sometimes. So are the very algorithms that we're trying to change also limiting our ability to change them? Yes, and I think that that's also part of the progression of research and mathematics, though, as well, right? Because I'll give you a great example. One of my advisors uh, is a former systems admin of NASA's numerical aerodynamic simulator. He says to me frequently that humanity only understands 1% of the world around it, really, right? Mm-hmm. And when you have... Um, when you understand that as a basis of dealing with everybody and everything, um, you really start understanding that there, at the end of the day, it's going to take us more time in the future than we'll ever be able to account for, for all of the prior mathematics that's already been laid down to really be realized. So all the true value of mathematics that's already been done still has yet to really be unlocked and unleashed or or really found where that mathematics is going to have a home in the real large scheme of history because some mathematics we just haven't discovered how to use in more efficient ways than others and that's the real trick is going to be how we utilize sequences of mathematics in unique ways to be able to drive these results in the long run. So that's a, it's an incredible statistic when we look around us, and I'm sure most listeners would, would listen to that and think, how can we only know 1% of the world around us when we look out into the world and we think about what we're doing and, and, and the experiences we have. But if we are to unlock in the future the true value of the mathematics that currently exist what is the greatest barrier to unlocking that true value is it is it our arrogance is the is it the assumptions that we rely on is it our fear how do we break and unlock that value 
So that's a very good question. There is an arrogance to the human race that has really been prevalent since the early times. So there was a time in history when mathematicians who didn't have an answer for why something was occurring would give it all to God, right? Mm -hmm. And there are interesting correlations in numeral theology that might explain where numbers come from in interesting ways. However, God in, in, in past in past times, God was used as a replacement for a given scientist or researcher's inability to solve the problem. Right. right? So it was humans, it was, it was human arrogance that said, because we don't have the answer, or because I don't have the answer, it must be God. Yeah. Um, and, and that is humans for the most part are very arrogant creatures, right? We, we, we kind of live and, and maneuver around in a world where, you know, seeing is half of believing, right? And if we only see 1% of the world around us or less, then we're not really taking in the full experience. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah, I think that over time where, the, where this really changes and where you start seeing um, the influence is going to be in our ability to connect various studies and, and various thought processes. And where I, I remain kind of hopeful is that we're going to see convergences of like Web3 and different technologies that you wouldn't necessarily expect will have correlations. You're going to see market refinements over the next couple of years where you know, a new technology might come out that, that merges a few of these different technologies and um, really turns them into a, a single product. And by doing that and consolidating markets, you're going to see new innovation that, that thrives from that. And I'm, I'm fairly confident that the underlying math that some of these different technologies represent are also going to push forward in it a variation in our way of thinking about app design and how systems interconnect in the long run. Is that where the true value in, in many regards of AI is? There, its ability to, to consolidate and analyze its speed and its scale, all of these mathematical equations that, as you say, so many of which we, we are still yet to unlock the value of, in part because, I guess, literally and figuratively they sit in books and in filing cabinets and universe some of the great universities of the world that have long since forgotten about some of those equations and some of those theories is that the value of ai that it's able to bring over time all of those mathematical equations together analyze them compare them bring them into a a more consolidated set to to, to move forward and be able to unlock the value in that process well, I think a lot of that heavy lifting is going to be on the shoulders of humans for quite some time to come. Mm -hmm. what, where I am hopeful in um, what AI does enable is um, how fast we're able to actually find things out, right? So yeah. 
as things are happening, there are stats to collect, there's data that, uh, that you can be augmenting. So as you have a stream of information coming in to a system, there's a lot more information that could be generated by evaluating that stream of information and looking for key indicators and, and, and certain uh, factors of measurement Mm-hmm. that would be useful for that given user, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that as we continue to ex- extend these systems that are able to learn more and more information and, and make more and higher and higher fidelity decisions, I think these systems are going to really help us to um, better innovate, um, a better uh, process information, and, and better represent data in more secure ways. In recent years, we've seen an incredible convergence of many sectors driven by AI technology innovation. And we can think about bioscience and health and a great example with big tech AI entering those spaces, Google and Apple and Amazon being the perhaps the most obvious. And this convergence has the potential to change many industries, including the way they are funded and who funds them and the thinking and the motivation that sits behind the R&D and and those businesses, AI and otherwise. Um, What's your view on what the challenges and opportunities are of this convergence in terms of the future of innovation and transparency and and data privacy in these key critical industries? So what it really all boils down to is nations need to have a feedback cycle, right? Um, So in in the defense space specifically, um, you need to have a feedback cycle of intelligence and information. And um, the real basis behind the supercomputing fight and the the fight for quantum supremacy and, and what have you, that real battle all Plays, all correlates with the ability for nations to be able to accelerate their feedback cycle, right? Either mm-hmm. Or their feedback loop. And in order for a nation to truly innovate, they have to have a, a, a tighter feedback cycle where more and more data can be generated and sifted through and um, computed in order to drive innovative results, right? Um, And the faster that a nation can get those results, really the faster that the rate of innovation is gonna increase. Um, So it's really gonna rely on um, our ability to compete at a a macroeconomic scale, right? Um, And and that's kind of where you see a lot of the, um, we see a lot of the competitive talk amongst some of the larger nations in the world, right? Some of the economic superpowers, they even back to the eighties, they have been scared of one nation becoming the computing, you know, supreme, you know, being labeled the computing supreme nation in the world because the implications of that and of a nation's ability to respond, react, and take preventative measures given that kind of computational power um, would put them at a supreme advantage. 
So that that need, ever-increasing need, which I agree with you on for the speed of the feedback cycle or the feedback loop to, to ensure nations and businesses can innovate faster than ever, that relies on an increasingly tighter relationship than ever before between big tech businesses and governments within the, within their uh, within their region in order to achieve that does that compromise in turn the potential regulatory environment those same big tech businesses need to operate on if the governments are so reliant on them for their for the growth of their innovation well absolutely and then you also see in in, in many of these um, funding hubs that like in America, for example, we use to, to drive innovation, right? Because every, you know, a lot of different countries have plans and programs that they use to spark innovation by making specific investments in um, certain projects and in certain requests, right? Um, the, the, I think the long-term implication though, is that when you have that, that relationship that is growing tighter and tighter, right? So a, a good example of that would be Twitter, right? Where um, Twitter can also become a potential um, national security risk in the event that the, the wave of consciousness in that stream of thought um, becomes adversarial to the goals of a nation, mm -hmm. right? And, and once that occurs, it becomes a security risk for that nation and for the stability of that nation. Um, a prime example of that would be January 6th, where it was a, a, a conscious it, really what it was is it was the first attack by an ai system um on a government that we've ever seen in the history of humanity right and it was because you have thoughts that are being funneled in these silos that are being generated by artificial intelligence to keep a user on a website or on a platform and engaged with content mm -hmm. with no regard for whether or not there are additional long-term implications of an individual consuming this content just to keep them on the website. And the long, you know, the short-term implication was all of that information went left and everybody said, let's bum rush the capital. And that's what we ended up seeing as a result. So just to carry on with that a little bit more, one thing can, that concerned me, I think, a little when I attended the, the AI World CAN conference was that there's an awful lot of talk around the need for a more ethical approach to AI, but it wasn't always clear what the, what the concept would, that would be that would define this approach. You know, there was no real framework, no real methodology and so on um, delivered. And, and I wonder why that is. Is it an uncomfortable truth that actually it's not possible to have however much we want it, it's not possible to have a coherent ethical AI framework because of the, the complexity of the international technology development and the, and the macroeconomic and political world we find ourselves in. Is an ethical approach to AI actually possible, coherent one? Yeah, I think that 
we'll probably end up seeing it though in the later half of this decade. Mm-hmm. I think we'll start seeing more unified and, and more refined approaches that cover the um, the global marketplace scale, right? So I, I think that we'll start seeing UN adaptations of um, you know regulations that would kind of um, that would dictate some some uh, some structure. Now, what I think. Uh, what I think about the overall ethical AI research space as of today is um, it's great that we have philosophers looking at the philosophical implications of this kind of technology, right? However, when we're looking at the implications of a technology, from the very narrow viewpoint of that technology and where it is today, and we're not considering that it's still very much in its infancy, and we're setting the legislation on it based off of where it's at today and not where it's going to be in the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. we're not setting ourselves up for success to be able to successfully scale and deploy these new innovative technologies into the market rapidly enough because it just creates a whole lot of red tape. And as someone who's been, I guess, widely considered as one of the leading researchers in this topic um, in the world, um, what I've found is that there, there is risk in just the nature of the world, of the actual work, right? Mm-hmm. There's risk there. But what I find to be the most ethical approach is to not automate the actual decisioning process. Right. So by augmenting stats and providing new stats that have new uh, features and uh, fidelities contained that weren't there a couple of nanoseconds before, that's good, but then taking that and let's say using that to make decisions on whether or not a race of humans should get access to water or should get access to this or that, um, as was um, kind of found the case with a couple of different companies that have done this using AI and it's been used for the oppression of people. Mm-hmm. And that's so, so that's kind of the flip side, right? Is whether or not companies use this for the oppression of people as well. And I think that as time goes on, we're gonna need to start looking at what we consider data to be as a different kind of, um, as, as a different kind of distribution, right? We need to start looking at data in terms of open source. So I'll give you a great example in the you don't hear anything at all about there being a public list of children's hospitals. So with GPS, or, you know, with GPS coordinates, latitude, uh, latitude, longitude, you don't, there is no public list of these hospitals. But if we had it in public, then there wouldn't be any denying when something happened to those hospitals. Because once data is in public, it's everyone can see it. It's, there's no hiding it. 
And I think that that's kind of the hopeful thing that I've seen in, in the recent eight months has been to see the push from multiple different governments to use open source intelligence um, from social media and from various sources to really push the next generation of um, cyber war and, and war on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. There is a risk, I guess, of a new form of colonialism through data, you know, the, the water example you provided and the, the relationship, the, the complex relationship between big data and countries, particularly in the developing world, can potentially create a new form of data colonialism. How do we, how do we mitigate that? And how, what can be put in place in terms of checks and balances to ensure that that doesn't happen or it is at least minimized? Well, I, I think that the ethical questions that we have that circle around artificial intelligence are more of the pillars of ethics that represent the organization or individual that is composing the ethics regulations that um, you know fit them, right? Mm -hmm. So the, um, the the ethical gauge that you may have for a given system or response is going to be different than the ethical gauge I might have for a given system and response. And the dangers that we have today um, with that could be offset by requiring that certain key data points that are part of the ethical security of a given nation, those key data points should be open sourced to prevent collapse of a nation's population, right? So mm -hmm. in, a, in the case of a hospital, a hospital is vital to a nation's population because if the people aren't healthy, then the, the population can't thrive, right? Yep. Uh, the same thing with schools. Schools are, are vital because if the population isn't educated, then the population isn't going to be able to thrive. So certain, these certain data points, when you look at it, you know, look, the, the, you know, schools and hospitals are, um, you know, physical locations that have real value and meaning, but to a system, it's just a data point. Yeah. And to, to have these data points open source for the greater protection of, um, of the world, that would be a great thing. Now, there have been counter arguments from some of the leading researchers in the world as well, that, well, if you have all this information and you're also dealing with severe circumstances of corruption, then do you want to give all this information up to a corrupt power yes. um, that could potentially misuse it? And I think that that's where the responsibility of the global community really needs to step up and, and ensure that um, computer systems, technology, and, and really no form of power should be used for the sole discretion of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. um, because that's when it becomes unethical, um, clearly. And I think that we need to really align our pillars of ethics internally. So like your, your 
core ethics in an organization, they need to be defined before you start thinking about your AI ethics, right? Yeah. Because if you don't have your, your, your core principles and your, your core ethics together, then your ability to set ethics on an AI system or on a, on a system of decisioning is, is going to be inherently flawed. Agreed, agreed. Dominic, as we, as we come to the end, I just wanted to ask you a personal question in terms of, you know, you've already had some tremendous entrepreneurial success. You've, you started while you were still a high school, a top 100 programmatic advertising agency. You've been being voted by Technology Innovators magazine of one of the 50 AI CEOs to watch in 2021. What defines your ambition? What, do you, what, what is the end game for you? What are you hoping to ultimately achieve? So thank you for the great question. And, and by the way, you have been one of the more brilliant interviewers that I think I've ever had the opportunity of uh, speaking That's with. That's very kind of you. Thank you. I had a, a, a great sequence of questions in con. And this has been a, a good sequence of questions as well. Thank you. Um, you know, the, the thing that really drives me forward is when I set out to do this, we set out with a goal of being able to simplify a very complex problem of being able to just draw associations between text and, and assign labels, right? Um, now, as we're, we're looking at newer problems, more uh, advanced problems to solve, like um, the issue of mass shootings in schools and the issue of uh, weapons in correctional facilities and um, you know, the, the issue of, you know, governments are gonna have to worry about their satellites being hijacked from space. Mm -hmm. This is gonna be a thing one day. So these issues are all issues that have to do with feedback cycles and interventions in time. And what drives me and wakes me up every day and really keeps me fired up is knowing that we're so close right now with the technology that we've developed and the direction that we're going to really being able to make a sizable change in the status quo. And, you know, I, yeah, I've had many ups and downs in my entrepreneurial journey, even after going to con, um, you know, coming right back from con, I kind of got kicked in the teeth, um, having a really close friend of mine pass away. Um, so, you know, yeah, I've had many of these ups and downs. I've always learned to, uh, to always embrace the hardest times because they, they build the most character. Um, always look for the lessons to be learned in every situation rather than harping on it not going 100% how you wanted um, and, and always using what I know to be the case in AI, right? To, to always use the feedback that I'm getting from the efforts that I'm applying to be able to make those efforts more succinct and, and, and more impactful as I go along. And I think that if we can all do that, then that's a great recipe for success. How do you encourage your natural sense of curiosity? One of the big worries I have, and I, I deliver a keynote on exactly this topic that and we touched on it, earlier that in a way we're outsourcing our curiosity to an algorithm in some ways and that algorithm is funneling our curiosity not expanding it you are in the middle of 
both the need to be more curious, but also in the middle of that industry. What drives your natural sense of curiosity and how do you continue to maintain it and encourage it and grow it? So I like to use real world examples and things that can be done that can drive positive change in the world. So mm -hmm. one thing that I look at quite frequently and, and something that we actually donated drain pipe for is we donated drain pipe to, to prevent international sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a, a major problem that, that's very prolific around the world. And it's gotten more prolific with uh, distributed marketplaces that allow for obscure transactions to take place on the internet. Um, so what really like drives my focus and, and what really helps me think about the innovating forward and, and but also working with algorithms that are driving the, the forward looking change where I'm kind of living my life and where I really focus on is how I can drive change internally within my organization and you know within my technology to better connect with the problem is existing, right? So for in the example of international sex trafficking, there are many similar steps and many similar um, processes that are very similar to uh, tagging satellite data, for example, and training um, a system to identify that in satellite data, there's a house, right? Yes. Um, so those, those correlations and workflows require a very, very in-depth understanding of the actual requirements of a system. And working through that process to really lay out what that new workflow is going to look like in three to five years, 10 years, is really where I found a home in, in AI and, and in the work that I do. Um, I haven't really spent a lot of time looking to be a competitive person or looking to compete with anybody. Um, all respect to all of the leading researchers in AI. I, you know, I don't even really consider myself a leading researcher in AI. I know I'm up there with the, with the best of them, um, but I'm just someone who works really hard to find solutions to really hard problems. And I just happen to be focusing on tackling all of the hardest problems on earth right now. It's a very inspiring way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Dominic. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Um, and thank you very much for all these wonderful questions. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about what Dominic does, just go to drainpipe.io. And if you've enjoyed this conversation or any of the other episodes of the new PL, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And please join us again next week when we have a fascinating interview with our next guest. So I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.